Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in.net. I'm Sean Claybell, your host, and with me today are your two co hosts, Caleb Wells. Hey, y'all. Hey, How's y'all? it going? Good. Good. And, and Wailu. Hey, why? Good morning. Hey, you doing? <laughs> We're good. We're good. Good morning, uh-huh. Saturday. Yeah. I heard you had a fun night last night, so you're we're gonna work you this morning, right? Yeah, I'm feeling a little a little seedy this morning. Um, <laughs> Have a nice drink. Uh, Why? <laughs> I had six beers. It's a lot for me. That's a lot for me. Australian. I don't beers. drink beer. <laughs> uh, Australian beers. Those yeah, are probably uh, a little stronger, kind of like European beers. Everything yeah, you guys, in Australia. I think when I was in America years and years ago, I did have some Budweiser, I think. I think you guys do have more watered down drinks. Yes. That's what they say. Yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. we're wusses. Yep. I thought I'd better drinking back then, though. So that's probably, maybe it just felt like that. So. Well, capitalism and beer, if it's watered down, you can drink more and the company can make more money. Ah, okay. Right? It's all about the profit. Actually, is the beer you get, the the Budweiser you get from like a supermarket different to the the one you get from an actual bottle shop or? No, all the same. All the same, okay. Yeah, they are watered down. (laughs) Well, we do have tons and tons of craft beers nowadays. So there's tons of little beer shops that have little places that make beer and stuff like that in the back. So, mm. so many different varieties to choose from. Yeah, it's a big thing they say, I think. I hope you still think so. All right, let's bring on our guest, G. Andrew Duthie. Hey. Hey, Andrew. how are you? Good. I'm good, how are you? So the whole discussion of uh, Budweiser brought to mind an, an off-color joke, and I'm just going to let it go at that because <laughs> we don't want to start <laughs> with the, with an off-color joke. But. Oh, hey, you know, I mean... We're, we're let's all let's read this way. The, the, the punchline of the joke is because it's blanking near water. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, the funny part about all that is I'm, you know, I'm not a fan of Budweiser, but I also haven't had a beer or any drink in, oh gosh, oh, 25 years. Hmm. Yeah, about 25 years or so, something like that. So I'm the wrong authority, but I definitely <laughs> was not a Bud drinker when I drank beer. For sure. So, Way would would probably laugh at me because, you know, if if I drank something strong, it would be a big can of Fosters, which probably get the eye roll and uh, laughed at. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I didn't, I never got a taste for beer. So for me, it would be something like Firewater, which I would just carry around a fist and just take swigs of that, which is like cinnamon schnapps. It burns the way. Oh, I see. It was fun. Interesting. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Anyway. All right, Andrew. So <laughs> so we like to start off the show with a little introduction. So why don't sure. you tell us about yourself and what you do and 
how you got into .NET. Okay. Well, so I'll start off with kind of the very short version and we can dig in wherever you, wherever you like. Um, so I've been in the programming field for, oh gosh, probably pushing 2021. So probably almost, probably about 25 years. Got my start in doing .NET stuff or actually pre-.NET. Actually, I, I started off in uh, Visual Basic 4. So Go ahead and go ahead and mock me for being a VB. No, person, no, no, but, no. That's uh, where I started too. So, but yeah, I got. As as... I actually had worked. I spent about six years uh, out of college working in technical theater. So I worked in the DC area. Here, I'm in Northern Virginia, and I worked a lot of the theaters in the DC area, um, doing everything from building scenery, hanging lights. Sometimes had just crazy things that we had to do. I did. I learned how to weld. Working in theater, did electrical work, wiring things, plumbing. We had one set I had to build that actually had a swimming pool on stage. Actually, that show had almost all of the things that you're never supposed to have on stage. We had water in the form of a swimming pool. We had animals. We had fire. Um, and uh, there was one other, I'm blanking on it now, but basically... You know, all of the things that you never want to have on stage because bad things can happen. We have them all in one show. So it's like, Sounds like a fun show to me. Yeah, let's really tempt fate here. <laughs> so so I did a lot of that and then realized after about six years that, you know, working in technical theater, the parties are fantastic, but you don't get a lot of sleep. Like anytime during tech week, pretty much all week, you're up almost all night. You catch a little nap here now and then switching out shows. So it's kind of like a death march at the end of a software project. So you can kind of see where that's going. But also probably one of the worst possible ways to make money. Like at the low end of technical theater, you earn almost nothing. And as you can imagine, the Washington, D.C. area is not a cheap place to live. So really, one of those two things. <laughs> yeah, one of those two things had to give. You know, I had, I had yeah. lots of experience with roommates and basement apartments and shabby neighborhoods and so I decided I needed to do something different and ended up software was kind of the the recommended way to get into that. And I started off actually kind of on the on the networking side of things and you know getting some certifications and I realized I didn't want to be a network geek. And so I jumped into doing teaching myself Visual Basic and it ended up not long, not long after getting going through that, I bumped into somebody at a at a oh gosh, what was it? It was called Microsoft Dev Days. Like anyone remember the Dev Days? They were local events that Microsoft would run throughout the U.S. And I ended up chatting with one of the one of the speakers who said, "Well, send me a resume." Because I said, you know, "How do I get started in you know in working in software?" And he said, well, you know, "Send me a copy of your resume and send him a copy." And then two weeks later, I took and passed the VB certification exam. Sent him another copy, and apparently the folks at the company it was a small company, like forty people were impressed enough. They're like, well, he's obviously eager. Let's bring him in for an interview. And they hired me and stuck me in a room with two of the best programmers in the company. <laughs> it's like, oh, perfect opportunity to just sponge. You like suck in a lot of knowledge and, and learn as much as possible. And the rest, as they say, is sort of history. Other than as, as a programmer, I found a lot of satisfaction, but I also always had kind of the urge to share what I knew because as I learned more and more, what I realized is lots of people were teaching me and I had the urge to kind of teach others as I learned and ended up getting involved in the local user group community here in the DC area. And one thing led to another. I ended up speaking at a Dev Days event years later 
And after that Dev Days event, the at the time developer evangelist for the DC area stopped me afterwards and said, hey, I'm moving on to, to another role. Would you be interested in applying for the job that I'm doing? And he described it. And it was like, okay, so basically what you're saying is you would want me to do the things that I'm doing for free in the community now, but get paid for it. Yeah. Like, they twist my arm. <laughs> Just, yeah, heck yeah. So, so I ended up at Microsoft as a developer evangelist. And the, the, the interview process is a whole nother story. Maybe we can come back to that because it is kind of funny. But I spent about 10 years at Microsoft doing developer evangelism, pretty much from the days of XP. So pre.NET or just as .NET was kind of happening. And then working all the way through like the Windows 8 era and Windows Phone, rest in peace. A lot of eras kind of went by the wayside over that 10 years. And then decided it was, okay, this is a good run. I'm ready to get back into doing you know, more consulting jump back into doing some stuff in Angular and a variety of other platforms. And then about about four years ago, got a call from a buddy of mine in the .NET community who said, hey, I've got a friend who's looking for a .NET stack architect. You know, are you, are you interested in talking to him? And I'm like, well, I'm not really, you know, I've got a good contract. I'm not really looking for anything right now. But since it's a friend of a friend, sure, I'll have a conversation. And that was Andy Pemberton, who was at the time running the solution architect team at OutSystems. And he kind of, we talked for a bit. It was intriguing enough that I went and downloaded it and tried a demo. And I was like, this really reminds me a lot of the things that I like about VB <laughs> with some of, without some of the things that I didn't like about VB. And the, 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 the twist was, you know, I don't know if you all have ever been in the role of a solution architect, but it's basically technical sales, right? And so I've, I've always been a bit reflexively allergic to sales as as a um, as an avocation or as a career path. Not that I don't respect the people who do it well, but it's just always been one of those things that that wasn't something that really appealed to me. And I thought I should do this in part because I haven't done it, and I should try it. Right, and it, it turned out that actually I I did it for probably about a year before I ended up back in an advocacy role. And it was fine. It was, it was actually, it was interesting because one of the things about technical sales is that if you are working for an organization that lets you do it that way, you can still be a teacher. And at the end of the day, like whether it's developer evangelist or architect evangelist or whatever, whatever the, the title is, developer advocate, I've always seen that role as being primarily about teaching. Right. And that teaching may be in the service of, hey, how do I grow our platform? Right. Whether that's Microsoft wanting to get more.NET developers, whether that's OutSystems wanting to get more developers, whatever the case may be. Right. Yeah. It's oriented towards, hey, we want more people doing this. But at the end of the day, it's teaching. And that's teaching is fun. You know, when you yep. see, I mean, it's it's harder when you do things like I'm doing now with, you know, video content than in person you know, user groups or whatever. And like one of the things that I miss a lot that I haven't, you know, that I don't have as much opportunity to do is things like code camps. We did some of the first code camps outside of like the Vermont code, I think, where was it? New England code camp was kind of the original code camp. And that was one of my colleagues up in, in New England did that. Um, anyway, so he originated that. And then we started doing them in mid-Atlantic. And it was just, it was this amazing thing, right? It's like a bunch of people come out of the woodwork speak for free, nobody gets, nobody pays for tickets, buy a bunch of food, bring people in on a Saturday. It's like a bunch, 
geeks geeking out for an entire Saturday or an entire weekend. It was just a blast. It was like, this is really outstanding. It's fun. So that piece... Is that I, a Code I, Camp I, or is that a... I thought that's what um, the hackathon is. No, so Code Camp is much more like, like sessions. So people sit and listen to a session and a demo and whatever, as opposed to a hackathon where everybody's building stuff over the course of a weekend, yeah. right? So both both can be really cool, but the Code Camp model was just, I don't know, it just really... The timing was right. It would. It was just really cool to be a part of that growing and just you know get several hundred geeks in, in a in a venue and it doesn't have to be anything fancy. You know, like later on, I actually got into to running more formal paid conferences and it's like there's just there's a really big difference in the stress level involved with planning a conference versus planning a code camp because like once you've got the venue squared away for a code camp, okay, if fifty people show up, if two hundred people show up. As long as you got enough food to feed everybody, no big deal, right? It's like it's either going to be big, it's going to be small, depending on the weather. Sometimes it changes. When you're running a conference and you have obligations for the number of rooms that you have to be able to guarantee for the hotel, <laughs> and if you don't actually hit those numbers, you're on the hook for cash out of pocket. It's like suddenly the stakes get really, really high. So, yeah, I, I first applied to Microsoft back in 1986. So I grew up wow. uh, and just just south of there, just outside of Tacoma. And so I was in college at the time. And during summer break, I went up, took me about half day to, to find where the campus was because they had just opened the campus and they'd done a lot of moving around and things like that. So I applied. So, but I didn't get to uh, go through the interview process. And I, I tried not to think about it too much because if I would have got hired back then, I'd probably be sitting in a much bigger house right now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if it, if it's any comfort, I have to kick myself slightly because during the entire time that I was at Microsoft, the stock was pretty much just in the doldrums, just sitting and sitting and sitting. So when I would get stock awards, I just pretty much just turn them around and put them into house projects or or just stash the money away. If I'd held on to the stock that I'd gotten over those 10 years and sold it at today's prices, I'd also be... Well, I don't know if I'd be in a much bigger house. I'd probably have a lot more property. Let's just put it that way. I don't. I don't know that I that I would want a much bigger house. It's a lot to take care of. <laughs> so, so that's kind of the the capsule of of about me. But going back to the interview, so I'm probably going to shock some people, but I figure they can't take away my retirement account at this point. So, my entire interview process to become a a developer evangelist at Microsoft consisted of literally one phone call. The current architect evangelist nice. at the time <laughs> who had worked with me, and I'm not going to name him because I don't want to get him in trouble, but he had worked with me on a different event and had seen me speak, was familiar with my work. And so we got on the phone and he said, Andrew, I know you can do this job. Do you have any questions for me? I mean, literally that was that was the interview. <laughs> so so I to this day, I feel like Somehow, fate must have pushed me in the right direction because you hear these nightmare stories about you know these horrible day-long interviews with Microsoft with multiple people in multiple rooms and grillings and whatnot. Nope, my interview was was pretty much the people who were there knew knew me and knew what I was up to, so they were, I guess, confident that I could do the job. Now that being said, I did actually while I was at Microsoft. I actually did do the the grilling process 
my team, the larger developer and platform evangelism team, had had created a couple of new roles that were kind of targeting enthusiasts. So they called it enthusiast evangelist. And the the goal of that was to kind of, I think, capture capture the attention of audiences that were not necessarily developers or architects, but were tech savvy and interested in technology. So at the time, this was this was when things like Zoom were coming out and Microsoft Media Center, right? There, there were a bunch of things that were not necessarily programming specific, but were were just oriented towards kind of high-end consumers and enthusiasts. So I did a I did a, a full day interview for that job and I did not get the job. So I was a bit crushed because I thought this is, you know, this is something that you know I mentioned before we before we started that I'm pretty geeky across the board. So I mentioned I, I do 3D printing. So just to, as a, a measure of how geeky. So we have at present, I think five 3D printers in the house, three of which are currently operable. So I, I have a couple of Ender 3s that I that I got for myself. I had a while back bought a, a small format printer, Cartesian printer for my son, who's now 14, this was probably when he was 12, he meanwhile outgrew the, the size of the bed of that printer and decided to use his own money to buy his own Ender 3 V2, which he then subsequently used. We were doing a, a camp through his church youth group, and he came up with the idea that he wanted to create customized journals for all of the kids who were attending camp. And so he got the our youth director to buy a box of hardcover, you know, little notebooks, like, you know, journaling notebooks. And then he printed nameplates and uh, like corners for the, for the books to kind of enhance them. So he spent the better part of several weeks printing and assembling these notebooks leading up to camp. So that was, that was kind of, that was one of those projects. Where I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. And he also designs his own board games and prints the pieces so that's kind of a, a geeky thing. I tend to be a little more, I print toys, but I also print some practical things. Or So one of the most fun projects that I printed was my former manager here at OutSystems came up with the idea of building an internet-connected AI-powered candy dispenser. So the idea was that you would have an app and that app, you could basically take a selfie and use Azure cognitive services to determine whether or not you were happy or sad. And if you were sad, it would dispense candy because, you know, if you're sad, you kind of need a boost. But if you were happy, you wouldn't get any candy because happy people don't need candy. So I think he regretted getting me involved in the project because I, I think he had the vision that he wanted to build this thing and create it and make it work and all of that. And so he sent me a box that had a stepper motor and the handle and shaft from a little food dispenser. Like if you've ever seen at hotels, they have like the little dial thing and you, you know, really have cereal or whatever in them. So he sent me those couple of things and said, I need you to design an adapter that goes from the stepper motor to the to be like the shaft of this handle so that it can go into this dispenser. And I said, that's really easy. Like I I use a, a piece of software called Fusion 360 and it's very straightforward. It's like draw a couple of circles, extrude the circles. I had, I think, a working prototype in probably 20 minutes, you know, printed it in 
another half hour. So like less than an, less than an hour, I had something I could test out and see if it fit on the, the shaft of the stepper motor. But then I realized it's like, I don't actually have the dispenser. So I don't have any way of knowing how much friction the wheel of the dispenser is going to is going to put in place how strong this stepper motor is like there's no way for me to know with just what i have here if this is even going to be useful and so i said so can you send me the link on amazon to the dispenser and just can i order one so that i can try this out and then it was all over from there because once i had the dispenser then it was like okay well now i have to i have to design and print a motor mount for the stepper motor so that it mounts in the right place and can turn the paddle wheel and whatnot. And then I've got to come up with the electronics. So I actually used a company called Particle. Yeah. So the, there's a board called a par- Particle Photon. That's like a, it's a Wi-Fi enabled, very small IoT board. And, you know, it's just Arduino code, web IDE, really simple stuff. So I basically set it up with like an OutSystems application that had some REST APIs, call out to the Arduino code, turn the stepper motor. Of course, I had to add some blinking LEDs and things like that because, you know, you got to have blinky LEDs when you dispense candy. Plus, you need some kind of debugging interface. So at the the end of the day, it's like we got the the candy dispenser, but Stacy, my my boss at the time, I think was a a little bummed that I kind of took over his project, but... You can't you can't kind of dangle a project like that in front of a geek, geek like me and not expect me to want to just go whole hog on it. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, and what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. So I have a question for you. You've, sure. You've been both an evangelist and you're currently an advocate. Mm-hmm. And it seems like these days, the companies lean more towards the advocate role or term. Do you see the jobs as the same job and they've just changed terminology or do you see them as different roles with with different focuses? So I think you ask a half a dozen different people in this role, you're probably going to get a half a dozen different answers. I think the advocacy role, the evangelism role, I think the part of the reason that evangelism as a discipline has, has kind of fallen out of favor isn't necessarily because of what an evangelist does so much as I think People are kind of, I'll probably get yelled at for it, but a little hung up on the religious connotations of evangelism, right? And, and I get that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 understandable because it can be a little confusing. But I mean, if you go back and look at the original evangelist, right? Guy Kawasaki doesn't strike me as like, you know, major Bible thumper or anything. I, I think really it's, it's you know, I think some of it is terminology, but I think that the role varies dramatically from company to company and from person to person. And I think people bring kind of their own flavor of what advocacy or evangelism or, you know, there are a number of different names for it. But, you know, some advocates are heavy on writing documentation or 
writing code, right? A lot of advocates are deeply involved in building APIs, right? So they're working closely with customers of their company and building the APIs that those folks work with, right? Some folks, like I said, are are heavy into building and maintaining documentation. My personal kind of bent is towards teaching. And currently, like for me, historically, like when I was at, at Microsoft, it was, you know, giving sessions at user groups, giving sessions at code camps. I mean, I would, so when I was at Microsoft, I covered Maryland, Virginia, DC, and parts of West Virginia, and you know, occasionally forayed into Pennsylvania. And because of this territory, I didn't fly a ton because it just like, there was very few places where it would make sense for me to take the time to get to an airport, fly somewhere, rent a car, get from the airport to where I needed to go. Like one of my favorite places to go was was uh, there was a, a .NET user group in Roanoke, Virginia that was fantastic because I would just pop the top on. I had a I had a Chrysler Sebring convertible. I'd hit I eighty one, drop the top, crank some some podcasts or some music, light up a stogie, and just roll down the road. And it was just it was very relaxing, like semis notwithstanding, because eighty one's got a lot of semis. But I would get to Richmond a lot. I get to Roanoke a lot. Occasionally down to Hampton Roads, Virginia. You know, so shout out to Kevin Griffin who had the the .NET user group down there. You know, so I'd get to a lot of these different user groups, and just hard to describe the 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 enjoyment that comes from that personal touch, that being able to teach someone face to face or share some new feature or some new thing that's coming out, and kind of see the heads nodding, the the, the eyes light up, or you know, when people just start to get it, and that's you know, like today. A lot more of what I do is asynchronous. So it's record a YouTube video and you can get some feedback through comments and things like that, but it's but it's not quite the same. And one of the things that, that I'm looking at more and more is, okay, does it make sense to start bringing in some streaming as well? So I'm starting a, I'm starting a video series uh, called the OutSystems Crash Course where like, I'm just not going to assume you know anything and I'm going to just... Really try to try to do really short burst videos. Here's this thing, like that I wish I knew when I got started, right? Or here's this explanation of one key concept, and just really try to keep them very modular. But it occurred to me that one of the things that that can be difficult for somebody who's learning a new technology is what do I do when I need to ask questions, right? If you're at a user group, right, there's usually time for Q and A afterwards, right? If you're at a code camp. You've got time to, to catch the speaker in the hallway and ask them questions about something that might be just that one key piece of information that helps you to get over the hump that you need, right, to be really effective or productive with, you know, that feature or that technology. And so, you know, part of my mind is going to, okay, so maybe like streaming on Twitch, like maybe it's like I release an episode or two Monday and Wednesday, and then Friday I do a Twitch stream where people can come and ask questions about, the, the episodes that drop that week or whatever they have questions on. But it's it's sort of, it's interesting to me the way that that technology has changed how we do evangelism slash advocacy, as well as obviously things like COVID make a big, you know, make a big difference. It's that much harder to get people in one place. And so it's, yeah, anyway, that's, hopefully that kind of answers your question. You know, I think yeah. that, you know, the, the bottom line for, evangelism versus advocacy is, I think a lot of it is terminology, but 
there's a wide variety of practices out there as well. well do you find that like working for a company like, like Microsoft or maybe another company as an evangelist that you kind of boxed into a, some sort of a scope? Like say if you're like a, I don't know, a cloud advocate for Microsoft, I'm guessing um, like do you have restrictions on like whether you can talk about AWS or anything or uh, is it pretty like, like are they pretty cool of you talking about anything as long as it's um, about tech? So it would be hard for me to speak to how things are today. I don't know that we had, you know, I don't remember having like strong pushback about talking about competing technologies. But at the same time, like I think there's a certain self-limiting when you work for a big company. You know, I I think it's just kind of natural that you're not you're not going to lead with something that competes with the technology that's kind of your bread and butter, if you will. Right. So when I was at Microsoft, I did go like I would go and talk with Cold Fusion developers. I'd go and talk to Cold Fusion user groups and and things like that. And that definitely wasn't in my wheelhouse in terms of technology that I'd used, but there was definitely outreach to other communities. I mean, I spoke at Ruby events, I spoke at Cold Fusion events in terms of, yeah, but I think that the 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 underlying assumption is is that in those cases, at least at that time, right, the goal was really on some level conversion or at least kind of coexistence, if you will. Uh, and also just, I, I think that even then, I mean, so I started at Microsoft in 2004. So even, even at that time, there was still a fair amount of the kind of evil empire reputation. And there were certainly in, in communities that weren't aligned with kind of the .NET world, there was certainly a strong perception of that. Well, oh, that's that evil Microsoft. So some of you know, some of re- outreach to other communities was also just to put a human face on a big company, right? And not that I think that my face is much to look at, but at least if I'm there with them and smiling and kind of geeking out with, it's not just some faceless corporation, I think was part of the the idea. I will say that that one of the one of the things that you find that that was always true when I was at Microsoft and you can come to take for, take it for granted is that pretty rare for somebody to slam a door in my face as an evangelist with Microsoft. I mean, there were people who would say no, but mostly people would take my calls, they you know, they'd be interested in in finding out what I had to say even if it even if at the end of the day it was like, yeah, no, this probably isn't a good fit, but you know, but a good conversation. When you go to work for a smaller company, it can be a bit of a culture shock to realize that, you know, conferences where you you know, submitted with a with a fairly high confidence that you'd probably get at least considered if not get a slot and you just don't get the time of day. So, and that's probably probably good for my humility to have that happen, you know. <laughs> it's like maybe uh maybe a, a good portion of the number of talks that I've given and I've I mean I've probably gosh, I've probably spoken dozens of times at at conferences and user groups and whatnot, I mean, actually probably hundreds. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's good to be reminded that that not all of those opportunities were simply because Andrew's a great speaker, that sometimes it's because Andrew works for Microsoft. So <laughs> people like mm-hmm. to have that big name. So it's good to be made humble occasionally. So if someone wants to be an evangelist, where 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 do you well, I guess now that it's where do you reckon they'd start? Do you reckon just start writing blogs and start a YouTube channel? Like get started that wow. way? So or? so you're so you're asking if if somebody wanted to get started in this discipline? Yeah. Yeah. So 
Yeah, I think it's definitely different from when I started. So my start, like I said, was was really around user groups. And I think that there's still something to be said for, for getting involved in community. That community tends more and more to be online versus in person, which on some level makes me sad because I think there is something really good about in-person interaction. That might be because um, of the last couple of the events of the last couple of years there, right? So yeah, I, yeah, I mean stuff. some of that, but but I think that that trend was happening even before COVID. I think COVID mm-hmm. just accelerated it. True. The reality is people spend a lot of time, whether it's on discourse or did Discord or mm-hmm. Twitter or whatever else. I think people are spending a lot of their time interacting with people through pixels and not through in-person interaction. I think that I certainly would encourage people as soon as they can feel comfortable and safe doing so to get out and and get in front of other people because I think that mm-hmm. you, there's there's stuff that you miss you know through online interaction. I, 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 I totally I, agree with you actually because um like throughout COVID one of the things I have missed are the you know the meetups and all that stuff and I'm, but mm-hmm. but it's not so much the knowledge you get from the other people I find it's just kind of inspiring meeting people that are really passionate about you know what they do you know, to a point where they you know they'd go somewhere outside of work and and learn about it kind of thing you know so yeah it's just feeding on that inspiration so. yeah absolutely absolutely and you know in terms of like blogging and things like that i i do think that what i would say is don't focus on the medium focus on and the word you use that i think is really crucial is passion right i think that in order to be an effective evangelist or advocate you have to be excited about the technology that you're working with you have to you have to have a certain degree of love for the thing that you're teaching because if you don't people can tell you can teach if you don't have the passion for it i think it's hard to teach effectively without that passion and so if you're somebody who finds like i i'm excited to get up every day and work with technology x y or z like if you're somebody who Love Xamarin, who is so excited for Maui, who's you know, like ready to roll on .NET six. Like if those are the things that kind of that kind of drive you to get out of the get out of bed, even hungover, and you're like, I can't wait to get to my keyboard and and write some code. Right, finding an outlet for how you can share that excitement and that passion with others, I think is the is the key thing. And for some people, that's that may well be blogging, right? But some people hate writing. And that's okay. If you hate writing and you've got a decent camera and a good mic, sit down and start doing short videos, right? And one of the things like, so the the listeners won't see it, but you all can see kind of, I've got my studio set up because I really, you know, I'm kind of passionate about production values. Like I want high quality video. I want, you know, good lighting. I want good audio. Screw all that, right? If what if what you want is you want to get in break into advocacy, you want to break into kind of this discipline, and there's something that you're excited about, then start recording podcasts, even solo, or call up or start calling up people that you don't know, or you know, get in touch with them, but you'd really like to hear their story, right? And just start record, hit record, get on Zoom like we are now, hit record. It may not be great quality, but start doing something, right? Start making videos, start writing blog posts, start recording podcasts. Just start. I mean, we're we're advocates, you know? You're already an advocate, why? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah. Hey, hey. So <laughs> and, and first thing, first thing yeah. that comes to mind for me is uh, user groups. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's be the easiest thing to get in there. And you're, you know, if you're a little stage fright or whatever, it's a smaller group. So yeah. Yeah. And funny story. Know. So, so when I first started speaking, it was back, I, I, so I went to work for this company called Spectrum Technology Group and I started getting into, you know, I was doing um, VBCom components. It was a classic, I started in classic ASP. So writing classic ASP in Notepad, writing middle tier VBCom components, SQL Server backend, and a mainframe to boot, right? So I started doing kind of N-tier development when N-tier was just starting. So like literally I got dropped into a project that was the perfect place for me to learn something new. And I wrote horrible code. Like you t- we talk about VB, right? You know, the whole double click on a button and then you've got a button click handler and you go and you write 2000 lines of code in the button click handler. That was me, right? I, w- oh, I was so bad. I was so bad. But thankfully I worked with a couple of devs who helped me gradually kind of pare that down and actually break things out into functions and actually have a little bit of architecture to my, to my components. But the I got into kind of the the N tier aspect, both from from reading about that architecture and also like implementing it. And so I thought, okay, well, now I've I've been doing this for a bit, so maybe I can build a talk around that. And so I submitted to a local, I think it was like Focus on Windows NT conference in in DC. And lo and behold, they accept my talk. And I thought, okay, so here's what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to do a lunch and learn for my company to practice the talk, and then I'll go do it at this conference. Only for whatever reason, the way that the scheduling worked out, the conference had to come first. So I'd never given the talk before to any to anybody. I was a brand new speaker. I had no idea what I was doing. I was literally terrified. And I get up on this stage, and I think there were probably 500 people in the room. I mean, it was a huge room. And I'm standing there thinking, these people can see how bad my legs are shaking. I mean, literally like my knees were knocking. I was just like, I felt like I was about to fall down, but I charged through this, this talk and, and I went super, super deep in the code. And to the point where like, I was, I was not just over, I was so far over that one of the conference organizers marched up the center aisle of the room, pointed at her watch and like, you're done. Like, Get uh, they practically had to get the hook and pull me off. And I thought, oh, I've utterly failed. I'm I'm totally never going to get invited back to speak again. And lo and behold, most of the comments that I got on that talk were great stuff. Could have been two sessions. Like people weren't happy that I didn't make it through all the all the way through my material, but they they loved what they saw. And so it's like, okay, so I can be terrified and people still learn. This is awesome. Great. <laughs> you know, but I definitely recommend code camps or user groups as a much less, a much lower stakes first entry into public speaking in that way. Certainly getting up in front of several hundred people at once as your first go around is a, it's a little more intimidating. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum. 
And I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. All right. I think I'm going to go first this week. I've been watching a new show that I found. And it's not on Netflix. It's actually on AMC. And I think it's... It might even be AMC Plus only. So you got to have their streaming service. But I found it on Amazon, Amazon Prime. So you can just buy this buy by the season rather than subscribing to the whole AMC Plus service. So it cost me 10 bucks for the first season, which is, you know, like 10 shows or something like that. So, and the show is called Discovery of Witches. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it at all, but uh, it, it's actually a pretty good show. It's about witches. It's about vampires and it's about demons. And hmm, a okay. witch a witch kind of falls in love with a vampire when they shouldn't be because each of the different races or whatever is supposed to be separate. And there's all those, also this mysterious book that only shows up for this witch in this library. And it actually is uh, really interesting. So I, there's a couple seasons of it out, but uh, I've only gotten partway through season one. So if you like fantasy shows about witches and vampires and demons, but it's not the it's not the typical character caricature of, of a witch and a vampire and stuff like that you would think of. Um, so it's not it's not Underworld where you have the movies where you have the werewolves and the vampires and two fall in love. It's it's <laughs> it's 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 more realistic. <laughs> Yeah, are there sparkles involved? And, and they're in London, and they're in London, and it's pretty cool. I mean, she, she didn't really know that she was a witch when the show first started, and she kind of you know learned it along the line, and so she's actually uh, somewhat uh, somewhat powerful witch. So, but she's still trying to discover herself, at least as far as I've gotten. So, I wish that could happen to me. Check it right? out. Right, I'm just going along doing my thing, living my life. And then all of a sudden, bam, I realize I have these superpowers. <laughs> You're a <laughs> wizard, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You just need your own personal Hagrid. Yeah, there you go. Right? Why? What's your pick? This week, so I've been, um, so, so crypto's kind of becoming this like big thing right now. Um, and But it's a little bit like mysterious. So this week I thought I'd actually just try to learn about what, what I guess crypto development was, was actually all about so my pick this week is actually the um the ethereum development tutorials um i actually just i think last weekend i basically just had a couple of hours free um and i just did the hello world thing and i was able to basically create a, a smart contract like in, in like in an hour or two so and yeah i learned a little bit more about how ethereum and what stuff works so i thought it was pretty interesting yeah so what's cool. the first lesson of crypto what is the first lesson? I don't know. <laughs> don't, 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 don't roll buy. your own crypto. Oh, don't get yeah. into crypto first rule until of crypto. you know how to do crypto. <laughs> it's recursive. Yeah. There you go. The, yeah. the main thing I know about crypto is that I'm not smart enough to do crypto. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't think I am either. I just thought it'd be good to kind of just yeah, just do something a little bit different. Um, see what it Absolutely. was about. You know? It's always good to do fun things that you're, you know, stretch yourself. Yeah. Yes, most definitely. All right, Caleb, what's your pick? My pick is also a TV show. I've been picking a bunch of those lately, but you know. Anyway, this one is fantasy kind of deal. It has some sci-fi in it. It's an HBO show called The Nevers. In the first season, there's six episodes. It's really good. It's it's well done, and they've they leave a lot of room for 
for growth in, in the next season, which I think they've already said they're definitely doing season two. So if you like, you know, sci-fi fantasy and superpowers and mythological creatures and stuff, you, yeah, it's, uh, I think I like it. So the numbers. Well, I am a superhero, you know? Well, yes, so you are. Maybe, maybe I like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andrew. What's All your right. So I, I'm going to go with the obvious one, which is people should check out OutSystems. Well, I'll there link go. there. Uh, but and I have a couple of 3D printer. I have a, oh, my favorite 3D printer. Well, so would it be the favorite 3D printer that I don't own or the one that I do? <laughs> so I own two, three, two Ender 3s. They're great printers. They're cheap, but they're definitely printers that you need to be willing to tweak and modify and tune. So if you if you love that kind of thing, you learn learn that way. It definitely would go if you're going to get a 3D printer. Ender three is a cheap way to get into the hobby. However, if you're really just a set it and forget it, you just want to be able to upload a model and have it print. Would definitely recommend Prusa i3 Mark. I think it's Mark three. I don't remember what their latest is, but the Prusa printers in general, uh, P R U S A is the is the the name of the guy who created these they have a fantastic reputation they're just they're a bit more spendy like the prusa mini i think is about 400 bucks the full-on prusa assembled is about a thousand and i just haven't been able to bring myself to pull that trigger and (laughs) i want one but i just like the the ender 3 is 200 bucks or less if you get it on sale so it's just kind of been a a no-brainer for me because i'm cheap and scottish and and I'm willing to spend the hours that it takes to tweak and replace parts and, you know, tune it and get it working the way that I want. But now you have me sidetracked. That wasn't actually my pick. Um, <laughs> so I actually, did picks, have, fine. I did actually have a couple of, of TV shows I was think, thinking about. One is one that I watched with my teenage son based on a, a book series called Alex Ryder. Um, it's on Amazon. They did uh, season one. I think they're, they're filming season two which hopefully will be out fairly soon because the problem with watching it when we did is we got through the entire season, boom, 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 boom. And then it's like, and now we have to wait. Not perfect, but it's a good action-oriented, you know, teenager as spy sort of uh, show. And then the other one that I that I've been watching or going back to is an old school one called The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. And it stars Bruce Campbell, who is an absolutely cheesy but hilariously funny kind of B-movie actor. And the whole Briscoe County series is full of just bad puns and dad joke type humor and whatnot. I, it probably doesn't hold up quite as, as well in some ways as... Uh, let's, just, let's just say what was came out. Oh, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to find the link for it. Anyway, it, it's probably 20 years old plus. So it does, you know, it's a product of its era, but it's a Western, it's a Western with some modern flair to it. So it's kind of pseudo sci-fi Western. So it's, it's a, it's a bit of a romp. If you like cheesy comedy, give it a whirl. I think it's on Amazon with, with ads. So you don't even have to spend any money. And if you hate it, don't write me hate mail. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I got. Great, great. Thanks, Andrew. You bet. Uh, it was really nice to have you on the show. If if our listeners want to reach out and get in touch with you, ask questions, what's the best way to do you know, for that hate do mail? That? So, <laughs> yeah, so, so they can they can reach me via my blog at devhammer.net. As I mentioned, it's not, I don't blog frequently. Um, they can also find me if they're interested in video content. If you go to youtube.com and search for OutSystems, you'll find our OutSystems YouTube channel. And I've got a bunch of content up there. 
We've got some series called Quick Hits, and then we've also got another series, as I said, coming out, the, the OutSystems Crash Course, which hopefully the first couple of episodes will be coming out here shortly. And uh, yeah. All right, cool. nice. Great. If our listeners want to reach out and get in touch with the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can find me uh, on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. And... Oh, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Yeah, I was actually finding the link to YouTube OutSystems. So you caught me. I was cheating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm Caleb Wellscoats. Great show, guys. Yeah. And, yep. Thanks, Andrew. Well, thank you. Appreciate you having me on. We'll catch everybody else on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all. Yeah. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.